0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Peter has spoken to us already about this great salvation that is being revealed in Jesus Christ. through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So, the prophets anticipated forever and ever the coming of this Messiah. They had within them the Spirit of Christ testifying to His coming, and they searched within themselves. They inquired of the Spirit what does it mean? Who will the Messiah be? When is he coming? We really want to know. We really want to know. And that desire, that think of it this way, that history of the revelation of salvation is what Peter has in mind here. And it's a history that, that aims at glory. And yet, it's a history that consists of a lot of suffering. And so the prophecy that is given is a prophecy that predicts the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, suffering and glory. And those two things are what we want to talk about this morning, suffering and glory. Because the promise of glory without suffering is a deception. The promise of glory without suffering is a deception. The example of Jesus that the, the prophets prophesied it shows this clearly. For Jesus, humiliation led to exaltation. Right, that's what Peter says. I'm sorry, that's what Paul says in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, Paul says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, in every tongue, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. First, humiliation, and then exaltation. First, he was humbled, and then he was highly exalted. And if in the life of Jesus that was the pattern, first humiliation, and then exaltation, why would we expect that in the lives of those who follow Jesus there would be any other pattern? Like, if we follow a Savior who suffered in order to be glorified, then shouldn't we too expect to live lives that follow that pattern? This is what Peter's been telling us already. Already in the the first nine verses of the epistle, he hasn't waited long to get into this idea, right, that we have to suffer in order to reach glory. We have to suffer in order to reach glory, but we suffer we saw last time, for a little while. And then we receive an inheritance at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the message of Peter, the core of that message. And as we get into Peter's epistle, it's almost as if Peter is like the apostle of suffering. He's the one who's always speaking to you about suffering. That's why it's good that his epistles are short. Because that's his topic, that's his thing. He owns suffering. It's like if, if you're among the apostles and anybody's going to talk about suffering it's like well I mean Peter he's really the guy you want to go to on suffering and yet wasn't always that way wasn't always that way for Peter Peter's not in his epistle sharing with you something that he's just always known a wisdom that he's possessed from birth in fact it's just the opposite of that the the words that Peter is telling us These are truths that he learned through suffering himself. It's the fruit of his own experience. Because for Peter, the glory was always easier to see than the suffering. When you consider the life of Peter, Peter was a guy who had a very easy time seeing the glory, imagining the glory, and a really hard time seeing the suffering really hard time hearing about the suffering. You think about in Matthew 16, when Jesus is trying to prepare His disciples for what's to come. Jesus knows that He's going to suffer and die. And so His disciples, He wants to prepare them for this. And so He speaks to them about the necessity of His suffering. He must suffer many things and be killed, He says. Peter hears these words, And Peter contradicts him. Peter says to Jesus, no, far be it from you that this should happen to you. This will not happen, he says. Jesus says, I'm going to have to suffer. And Peter's like, no, no, you won't. And it's interesting, this is the passage, that famous passage, where where Jesus responds to Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. It's interesting to note that the voice that speaks to Jesus in a comforting way and says, no, don't worry, you won't have to suffer. That's not going to happen. That's the voice of temptation. The voice that says to Jesus, it's all going to be okay. Don't worry about that. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. That is not a voice of comfort. It's a voice of temptation, which Jesus rebukes. Same thing is true with us. When, when I read about these things, I read about the necessity of suffering, I have a voice. And that voice says, Far be it from you, Mark. These things shall not take place. You will not have to suffer. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't be anxious. That's not going to happen to you. I think most of us are like this. We hear about suffering, and it's easy if you're in a pious mood to regard like, the, the fact of suffering objectively and, and say, well, of course, I mean, there will be suffering, and yet we comfort ourselves with the thought that it won't happen to us. That's a voice of temptation. That's not a voice of comfort. Because the way to comfort is not to say, don't worry, you won't suffer. Right? What we ought to do is prepare one another to endure suffering. It's a very different thing. But it was just hard for Peter to imagine that that's what would happen to Jesus. Of all people, that Jesus, this glorious Savior, would suffer and die, it just didn't make any sense to him. In Luke chapter 9, you read the story of the transfiguration where where that glory of Jesus becomes apparent. That that self-radiance of Jesus is revealed. And in that moment, Moses and Elijah, they come and and they commune with Jesus. They speak to Him. And Luke tells us what they speak about. He says that Moses and Elijah speak to Jesus of His departure. So they're speaking to Him of what must soon take place. The, The very thing Jesus has been teaching His disciples about. That's what Moses and Elijah have come to talk about. But when Peter sees it, Luke says what what he sees, he sees the glory. He sees the glory. His eyes filled with the glory, he interrupts them and he says, oh, this is wonderful. I think we should build tents, like one for each of you. This will be great. Then a voice from heaven actually has to cut him off. Peter's one of those guys, you need a voice from heaven to get him to stop talking sometimes. So the voice from heaven comes and, and, and interrupts him. But Luke adds an interesting observation that I think is very revealing when he reports Peter's words. He adds Peter spoke not knowing what he said. He spoke not knowing what he said. He was talking nonsense in other words. Because he saw the glory but he didn't hear the words that were being spoken. Like he, he his eyes were filled with the reality but his ears refused to hear. The words that were being spoken. I mean, The glory was real. But it blinded him to the suffering. His eyes were feel, filled with the glory. And the glory, it was real. But sometimes when we focus on the glory, it can blind us. We can focus on the glory to such an extent that suffering seems unreal to us. Unlikely. We can become so wrapped up in visions of glory that we can no longer see the cross. That obsession with glory can make you feel so spiritual. You can imagine the glory so vividly, it's like you could reach out and touch it, and yet it can become a kind of of deception, a kind of self-deception. We take something that is true and something that is real, but we allow it to fill our eyes in such a way that it blinds us to something else that we also need to see. In Peter's case, certainly he was deceiving himself. You see this in the night where Jesus was betrayed and arrested. John gives this account in John chapter eighteen, when Jesus, who's told everyone this has to happen, this is a necessity. When the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Peter draws his sword to resist, to fight back. He strikes off the ear of a servant who John names Malchus. Poor guy, got his ear cut off because Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, was trying to stop the atonement by force. Of all people, you would think you, Peter, in the inner circle, you should know. This has been told to you time and time again but when it happens, Peter's like, oh no, and he whips out his sword to fight. That's how out of touch he is with what's really going on in the life of Jesus. Like his reaction is entirely inappropriate. He cannot imagine this turn of events taking place. It makes no sense to him. And Jesus turns to him. And, and the rebuke that he gives, Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter just never expected that that cup would contain the suffering that it did. Jesus had tried to prepare him, but Peter hadn't received it. He hadn't listened. Jesus had told His disciples what would happen, and yet it came as a complete surprise. It it pulled the ground out from under His feet so much so that on that night... By the end of that night, Peter, who had been willing to fight for Jesus, would deny him three times. He would go from being willing to fight to the death, to being unwilling to confess Jesus in the presence of a few people gathered around a fire. Same guy, same night. When we make the Gospel all glory and no suffering, this is the kind of thing we equip people to do. Ironically, I think some of the most combative among us, some of the most combative Christians who can seem the most faithful because of that willingness to fight, collapse under the pressure of suffering because they never expected that to be part of it. Not even a lot of suffering. And suddenly everything seems derailed because the fight came from reveling on the glory. They told themselves there would be no suffering. Peter wasn't alone in this. All of the disciples suffered from this same misapprehension. All of them found it easier to imagine the glory of Christ than the suffering of Christ. So that after he died and came back, he encounters on the road to Emmaus disciples walking along and these guys are just as heartbroken as Peter was they speak to Jesus not knowing who he is and they tell him about all the things that have happened they lament like we thought this guy was the one we thought he was the Messiah but they killed him I mean some people say rose again but they killed him and they're distraught they're heartbroken so Jesus has to do With these guys, what he's had to do with his disciples over and over again, Jesus has to teach them. And he asks them this question. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? There you have it, the suffering and the glory. Was it not necessary? What he means is, the Christ, the Messiah, wasn't this prophesied? Like in order to be the one, don't you have to have experienced What I just experienced, isn't that the way it is? And then he takes them through the Old Testament. He takes them through, we're told, Moses and the prophets and shows them where all these things had been foretold about the Messiah. The necessity of his suffering so that he could enter into his glory. And it was there. It was all there. Just as it had all been there in the teaching of Jesus, it was all there in the teaching of the Old Testament prophets who had longed, to know, who had diligently searched and inquired, as Peter says, who had asked of the Spirit of Christ in them, what's going on? It was all there in their prophecies. It was there to be seen. The reason it had been missed was not because it was so obscure. It had been missed because people were blind to it. It had been missed because when they thought of the Messiah, they were looking for glory without suffering. They thought there would be glory without suffering. This is a beautiful moment, a glorious moment, when Peter finally gets this. The beginning of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his sermon at Pentecost. And he's the most unlikely guy to be doing this. I mean, the the story, the the biography, biographical accounts of Peter all show Peter is sort of really passionate, but, but goes off the rails all the time. So you're thinking, if you're looking for spokesmen of the apostles, maybe this isn't the one you want to lead with. And yet it's Peter who leads here and preaches here, and he preaches a sermon that he needed to hear. He preaches to the people the sermon that he had such a hard time hearing himself. It is about the suffering and the glory of Christ. He ends with this declaration. This is in Acts 2, verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in that sermon, he reaches back to the prophet Joel. He reaches back to the Psalms of David and he says it was all there. It was all predicted. If we had had eyes to see, we would have known that the one that we inflicted the suffering on the one that we crucified was the Messiah who had been foretold. It is in the life of Peter a glorious moment. When you see him at Pentecost, it's amazing as he speaks and he proclaims the gospel before the people. It's a glory, though, that came through suffering. Like the life of Peter was a life in imitation of the life of Christ. He had suffered to reach that glory. He had been humiliated. This man who was now leading the apostles had denied Christ when they'd come for Him. The search of those Old Testament prophets was a search Peter could relate to. Because his own life had been a kind of search into the truth of things. And he hadn't always gotten it right. There had been things he'd been blinded to. He'd seen the glory so easily And the suffering had been hard for him. He peered into the mystery. He'd seen the subsequent glories. Not so much the suffering. But the thing is, suffering can open your eyes. Suffering can open your eyes. Suffering, in the case of the prophets, was like the beginning of a quest. We look back at our text. Peter talks about the prophets and how they inquired Carefully, they searched. They searched. They were on a quest for understanding, for knowledge. It's only natural. You think of what the prophets suffered the way that they were persecuted for the Word that they proclaimed, the Word of the Lord. It's only natural that they would want to know, uh, so what is this all about? So what exactly is it that I'm suffering for? What is this message precisely? When is this stuff supposed to happen? Preferably sooner, not later. Of course... They searched. Of course, they inquired. They were on a quest to discover the meaning of the mystery their lives revolved around. The the purpose behind their suffering. And it's interesting the things that Peter tells us about them. He says, like, who they were asking was the Spirit of Christ within them. How did the prophets of the Old Testament prophesy? Where did the Word come from? It came from the Spirit of Christ Within them, Peter says. It was the Spirit of Christ in them who was predicting these things, who was giving them this prophecy. They received their inspiration by the Spirit. And then he says, the Spirit, interestingly, as, a, as an aside, he speaks of the Spirit and he, and he refers to the Spirit as, as he, not it, but as, as a person rather than a force. I think a lot of times, uh, e- even as Christians, we tend to think, you know, Father, Son, and amorphous force, power, but not at all. I mean, the, the Spirit, too, is, is personified. The Spirit is a person. The Spirit speaks and predicts, and, and, and what the, He predicts are the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, the subject of their revelation was redemption. So sometimes we'll make this point, we'll say, like, the whole history of the Bible is the history of redemption. And and this is what Peter is, is pointing to. Like the substance of their prophecies, all of that, it was all pointing to the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's what it was all about. They prophesied, in other words, the grace that was to be yours. That's what the Old Testament prophecy is for. You're not committing a mistake when you go back to the Old Testament and you start seeing Christ in the Old Testament. You're not misreading what is there. Peter says this is what's there. This is what it was all about. The prophets themselves, they didn't see it clearly. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had to inquire so carefully and ask so much. No, they didn't always understand the full significance of what it was they were prophesying. But Peter tells us they were speaking of the grace that was to be ours. This is what I mean when I say uh, suffering can open your eyes, that it can Of put you on a quest. I think it's true that when we suffer, uh, suffering does something to us that comfort never does. Like, suffering raises questions that need answers. It puts us on a trajectory, a path of searching, of looking, of questing that, that comfort doesn't prompt us toward. So, suffering puts us on the path of understanding, a path of future hope. It is suffering that gets us to lift our eyes up from the now and look forward to the future. And suffering can also be a revelation of God's care. A revelation of God's care. I mean, how's this for a glorious thought? Peter says the prophets and the apostles and even the angels serve you. He says that uh, it was revealed by the Spirit to the prophets that they were not serving themselves. They were serving you. Their whole point of their lives, of their sufferings, all of it was meant for you. That's what they were doing. Everything that they endured, they endured for your sake. It's the same as the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 when he gives us that catalog of heroes of the faith that we looked at in the fall. He says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect or complete. It was all for us. It was all for us. Everything that they endured. And the Holy Spirit also sent the apostles. He sent the ones who preached the good news to you. He sent them into the world. And here, Peter, he's speaking about people like himself, like people like me who followed Jesus, people who saw him, people given this message. To bring out into the world, it was for you. It was for your sake that we endured these things. Even the angels, he says, long to look into this. Which is crazy. You think the angels, they're in the presence of God. So you would think, if anyone had insight into the plans of God and what God was going to do, then the angels would know. Like Mary, if she had had the forethought, she could have pumped Gabriel for information. Like, let me know when all this stuff is going to happen. But he couldn't have answered those questions. Even the angels stand, as it were, on the sidelines, leaning over the rails, peering down to see what God will do in us. Because it hasn't been shown to them, just like it wasn't shown to the prophets, just like the apostles, they didn't have it all, like it was waiting to be revealed in us. It's a revelation of God's care. When we suffer, sometimes it awakens us to the way in which we are supported by people around us that we never expected. And the thing, too, is when we suffer, we sometimes realize our purpose is to serve and support others in a way we didn't realize before. It's strange to me that the people who are the most supportive, the most giving They're not the ones who have the most. They're the ones oftentimes who've endured the most. And as a result, feel a sympathy that they didn't feel before. Suffering can do that. It opens your eyes to the people around you. Both as as a support and also as people who need to be served by you. But if there is suffering, there will be glory. This is a sermon about suffering and glory, not suffering or glory. There's not a choice to be made. It is suffering and glory. And so far, the way I'm talking about suffering, it almost makes suffering sound like a good thing. Like there are all these benefits attached to suffering, so we should really you know, want to suffer more? Which is ridiculous. Of course not. I mean, suffering in and of itself, it's not good. It's not good to suffer. There are benefits... But, but suffering can be really bad too. right? Suffering doesn't usually open people's eyes. Suffering is more likely to blind them. If you think about it, that is what happened to Peter on the night Jesus was arrested. He was blinded by suffering. His eyes had been so filled with glory that when a little bit of suffering entered in, it was too much for him. He couldn't see any longer what it was all about. He lost the hope that he had had. Just a little suffering was enough to blind him. And he denied Christ. I think suffering usually leads to despair. Suffering doesn't usually lead to hope. You don't go around and say, oh, well, this is the most suffering place. This is where people are tormented the most. And man, they're just so hopeful. So optimistic. No. Usually, suffering does lead to despair. I think... The key here is suffering and glory. Having eyes not for just one or the other, but for both. The only time suffering leads to hope is when humiliation is endured with an eye towards glorification. An eye towards glorification. If it's true that our eyes can be too fixed on the glory so that we don't see the suffering and are unprepared for it, it's also true that when we suffer, our eyes must be fixed on the glory. We must be fixed on the glory. We must look to the glory when we suffer. Even our suffering, as hard as it is, it can become a kind of promise. A kind of promise. Because we know that if we suffer for His sake, then we will be in glory with Him. If we follow Him in His suffering, we will follow Him in His glory. Jesus drank from the cup. And so must we. It's interesting, in Gethsemane, before the soldiers came, as Jesus was praying with His pious, sleeping disciples all around Him, He prayed these words to the Father. He said, I glorified You on earth having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I glorified you here by carrying out the work you gave me. By enduring the humiliation, I glorified you. And now, glorify me. Those were His words. And like Jesus, we glorify God when we carry out the work that He's given us to do. When we pursue the calling that He's given us when we discover the gifts that He's given us and we use them for His honor and glory to serve one another, when we share His grace, when we do unto others as we would have them do unto us when we endure suffering for His name's sake, we glorify Him. It's interesting to compare these two moments right before the arrest of Jesus. When Jesus is praying... He says these words, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But then, when the voice of temptation comes to him, as it has before in the form of Peter, he turns to Peter and he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The example that Jesus gives isn't rushing headlong into suffering. It isn't suffering for suffering's sake. Pain is good. Nothing like that. Jesus says, if you're willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. Shall we not drink the cup the Father has given us? If we follow after Christ, then really that's the way. That's the way to see the suffering and the glory. Not to yearn for the suffering as a way of earning the glory, but rather to see the glory as a way of enduring The suffering. Not something that we seek out, but something that we will endure if it is God's will. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Let our prayer and suffering be that. Not my will, but yours be done. We will suffer. We will have to endure humiliations. If it's God's will that they will pass from us, so be it. But if not... If not, nevertheless, I will, not mine be. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsuefalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.